Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is September 13th of 2012, and our guest tonight is Dr. Lala Strofsner, who is with the uh, NYU Silver School of Social Work. She heads up the addictions program there, and she's written many books about women and addiction treatment and ethnocultural uh, competency and addiction treatment. It should be a very interesting show. Before we start, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Dr. Lala Strassner, is with us right now. Lala, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for inviting me, Ken. Well, thank you for coming. I think uh, these are some very important topics. I think in the the past there's often been a tendency to say one size fits all, put everyone in the same treatment and not be aware of differences based on things like gender, um, sexual orientation, uh, ethnicity, cultural background. I think these are very huge factors in uh, how people will react in their interaction to counselors and treatment providers. I agree. Today we have moved from this one-size-fits-all model and much more aware of individual differences. Unfortunately, we still haven't discovered what makes what what is helpful for different people. But we're trying to use a variety of different techniques, which eventually will allow us to be much more individually focused than in the past. Well, let's first uh, talk a little bit about addiction treatment for women. Um, I know what. Uh, Quite a few decades ago, I think in 1970s perhaps, that uh, Jean Kirkpatrick started Women for Sobriety. She said that uh, she didn't feel that AA fit women very well and they needed a different approach. Um, what do you think about that? Well, women do need a different approach, whether they need a different organization or not. Women are much more, in general, again, we don't want to stereotype all women because some women are di- <laughs> women are different from each other as much as men are different from each other. But by and large, what we know from research and literature, women are much more relational. So in some way, they need much more closer connection that in some programs they can get and in other programs they do not. In terms of treatment programs per se, women do better when it's a women's only group. Unfortunately for men, research shows that men do better when they have women in their group. So it's somewhat of a no-win situation. Women do better with other women and no men. Men do better when there are some women in their group. So nobody has figured out how to find a solution to that conundrum. So, but in terms of women's group, I, whether it's AA or Women for Sobriety or any other kind of group, when women are running the group and are there 
on their own. They do they do better. They don't focus on the men in the group. They are more focused on themselves. Now, I wonder, just uh, from some studies I've seen, um, it seems like AA is about two-thirds men and about one-third women. I've seen several studies on moderation management that actually showed that moderation management is about two-thirds women and about one-third men. I wonder if women are more attracted to moderation-based programs. I think it depends on the community. In New York City, most uh, the programs are much more uh, equal for men and women, but I'm sure in other communities, let's say for AA programs, there are much more more men than women. But it really depends on the community. It, uh, I mean, you can generalize in terms of numbers, but if you look at the specific communities, you'll see New York, also women, there are more women with substance abuse problems problems in comparison to other communities. So so AA does in New York City certainly you'll see more more of a balance between men and women. And it depends within that it depends on the particular community. It depends on the substance. So if we're talking about alcohol there might be more men, but interestingly with women there many more of them are going to NA than used to be. So there are changes. Now, in terms of moderation management, I really don't know because the numbers are still small compared to AA. That's true, but um, I, they did a membership survey in MM. I used to I used to work for them, so I know they did it about three different times, and all three times they got the same numbers, and it was... Uh, Two-thirds women, one-third men. So it was a very interesting comparison, whatever it means. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what it means. I think I would like to look in, into it a bit further and see what, I mean, it may be that women are not as, their drinking is not as bad as men, so moderation management makes sense because they still, feel they have control over their drinking, whereas men, by the time they get into any kind of treatment, even self-help, they are much more in worse shape. Women, regardless of the problem, even physical problem, they will seek help sooner. So that may be one explanation, but I'm really not sure. Now, you mentioned that it's important for women to have a relational component. Could you expand on this some more? Well, we know that women need, quote-unquote, more friends. They need to have other women to share with. So, And their interpersonal relationships are very critical for women. Developmentally, I mean, if you look in terms of child development, female girls connect to their mothers. And that's a relationship that continues through life. For boys, when they connect with their mothers as babies, which they do, at some point they have to kind of engage in that relationship and connect to a male figure for their, in terms, developmentally, in terms of role models. So there's, at some point, men need to, again, I'm 
it's I'm generalizing, but in, men at some point need to separate in terms of development of their own sense of self, whereas women need to stay connected for that purpose. So that continues through life, and we know in treatment women do better in connections and, in, as I mentioned before, in women's only group. Now, do um, do the different genders view, say, alcohol or drugs differently? Um, is it worse to be a woman drinker than a man drinker, or is this changing? Well, I think society reacts differently. It's much more okay to be a drunken man than a drunken woman. So it's not. So in terms, of women internalize that sense of disapproval, which is much more obvious, and the sense of self. The sense of self is much lower when compared to men who have a alcohol or drug problem. So, and that's true throughout every country in the world. Women, the sense of self, when they use a substance, they are less able to fulfill their functions in terms of family, and that's kind of the less draw for many families. So families will accept a, a drug addict male member or alcoholic male member, they are much less accepting of a female alcoholic or drug addict. Okay, that brings us to another question um, related. Do different cultures view drugs in different manners? Do some cultures find some drugs very acceptable where other cultures might find them very unacceptable? And Do they view intoxication differently? Well, Certainly, throughout the world, you see tremendous differences. It's uh, much more okay to drink wine with food, let's say, in Italy than it is in Scandinavian countries. And, you know, if you're looking at different religions, they have different views. If you're Muslim, you're not supposed to drink, but it's okay to smoke hashish. So, so what you see in the Middle East, and it's, and I'm talking now about men, women, it's not okay. But for men, you will see them sitting at a coffee table in a cafe, and they will smoke hashish, but the drinking is not allowed. And then I, if you have in other cultures, drinking is much more acceptable, like in the American culture, but smoking pot is not, at least publicly, it's not acceptable. So culture says, tells us what we can do or what we cannot do and where we can do it, and even the gender issue, it's much more taboo in some cultures for a woman to smoke pot or drink than in other cultures. Well, I noticed one of these things happening uh, when I was living in Minnesota. Minnesota got quite a few uh, Hmong immigrants, the uh, the Hmong people from uh, Laos, the mountains there, where they used to grow opium. That was their main mm-hmm. crop, was opium and pigs that they would grow at home. And they thought uh, they could come to Minnesota and, you know, do the same thing, grow opium and pigs. And they <laughs> they had some difficulties with that, yeah. 
Yes, yeah. And for many immigrants, it's a real culture shock because what they used to do at home is not something approved in their new country. And they don't even think of it as being illegal or something they shouldn't be doing initially. And then to find out they can be arrested for something that's very much part of their culture, it's really a shock for them. And it takes... uh, Certainly, a, a lot of uh, a lot of trauma to learn what's acceptable, what isn't in a new culture. Okay, um, are there some specific ways that treatment can be adapted uh, for women or for uh, specific cultural groups? Well, it really has to be adapted to the individual. The model I think of is cancer treatment. I mean, we no longer think of cancer treatment as being the same for everybody. I mean, some people need chemo, some people need radiation, some people need different kinds of medications. And I think that's where we're going to be moving toward in addiction, that it's going to be not so much even gender-related or culturally related. It's going to be focused on the individual. So some people may need to go to AA. Some people, this will be contraindicated. It's not for them. They need to have a different kind of approach. Maybe they need harm reduction. But it's really going to take a whole different training for clinicians because they need to assess each individual patient and really provide an individual treatment approach, which is costly, but uh, without that, we're really not helping people. And just like with cancer, we have been much more effective with different kind of cancers when we focus on the individual needs and uh, starting with individual assessment. What kind of cancer is it? What kind of a, what's the family history? What's tr- previous treatment approaches? And what we can do today, which we couldn't do even 10 years ago. Well, I know when I was uh, undergoing treatment about 10 years or so ago, um, there was definitely not uh, not an individualized approach. In fact, uh, well, I was in Minnesota, of course, the home of the Minnesota model in those days. And, you know, if I said something like, uh, don't give me the 12 steps, they're objectionable to me on religious grounds, it would be, that's a symptom of your disease, that's a symptom of your denial. And I just got confrontation instead of, you know, any Mm -hmm. individual approach. That was very common then, and I think it still is, although it's changing some. Yes, it was very common. It was the only approach we really had in the United States. And it worked for some people, and for many people it did not work. So we have gradually learned that we do need this much more individual approach. And the whole concept of harm reduction has become much more acceptable in the States. And it's been around for a long time in Europe, but it's just coming to the States as an acceptable alternative to this total abstinence model. So, again, it has to be individualized, but more importantly, we need to train 
provider, treatment providers to really do a good job in assessing and providing treatment based on the individual's needs, not on what's been written in books 50 years ago or 20 years ago. Well, I think that's very true. A lot of my colleagues, um, uh, they were very comfortable with the 12-step approach. It fit them well, and they didn't have a problem with it. Uh, but other people might find something like a cognitive behavioral approach is much more comfortable, especially if they have difficulties with cons- with ideas of religion or if they're very science-minded. So um, what do you think of the cognitive behavioral approaches? Again, for some people, it's very effective, and I'm familiar with smart recovery, which is based on much more cognitive behavior approach, and some people find it very helpful. Actually, I was seeing a client last week, and he's doing both. He goes to AA meetings, and he goes to smart smart recovery meetings. So he feels the more he gets from everybody, the better it's for him. And it seems to work for him. I'm not sure I would recommend it for everybody. People, will, I, I recommend that people try different kinds of groups, even different AA groups, and then different kinds of non-12-step groups, and just find what fits for them and what they're willing to to continue doing. What we do know that providing once-a-week therapy is not going to be enough that the need for a support group is very important. Yeah, I think it's very important for people to uh, look around and find what's going to fit them. Um, what do you think about the study, the NISARC study, that we found that uh, more than half of people eventually overcame alcohol dependence on their own without any treatment, without any AA? Absolutely, and we know that what's called spontaneous recovery exists, but these are not the people we see in treatment. Those are people who do it on their own, never go to seek help, are not in any research studies because they don't seek help, and we know that they exist. Now, who's going to fit in that model versus another one? We don't know how to tell who's going to need treatment and who doesn't. Obviously, people who don't need treatment are doing it on their own. Just the same like with people who want to lose weight. Some people just decide they're going to lose weight and do it. They never seek a doctor. They don't do anything special. They just probably exercise more and eat less and they function fine. So we do know the same thing applies to every disorder. Some people just uh, recover. We're seeing that with schizophrenia now, which we never believed that people can recover from schizophrenia. But we do know that some people do. Without being in treatment, without medications, or with some minimal medication, and uh, we need to accept that, see, again, people are different, and uh, some people need more help than others. Well, my ex- <clears throat> my experience running our HAMS harm reduction group, one of the things that I've noticed uh, is really striking is uh, we sell about three or four times as many books as we get participants joining the groups. 
So I think a huge number of people are taking the information home and applying it in the do-it-yourself manner. Absolutely. And America is well known for the do-it-yourself approach. And many people, they buy books to do it themselves. Often they might buy the book to read about someone else, a loved one, to get a better understanding of what's going on with them. But we are great believers in just self-help in the literal sense of reading a book and just helping myself to get better without going to any kind of treatment or, or any kind of group approach. So this certainly is very common and in line with kind of the American individualism that, you know, you stand on your own two feet and you take care of yourself. So it's very culturally appropriate. Now, of course, some people cannot do it, and those are the people who do. We see either in your groups or, or I see in treatment individually or in group, and I see people in hospitals. So those people have tried to do it on their own but have not succeeded. Yeah, I know a lot of people um they need more of they need more of a social component than they actually have with their own friends and family so that they can find that in the, in these groups sometimes. So uh, often, you know, many times people are drinking or drugging because they're lonely. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if they find a substitution for it, Whatever group, it, it fills a need so they don't have to stay home and feel depressed and drink or drug. So we are, as human beings, we are social animals, and we need people to be around. Otherwise, the tendency is to become depressed and, and really try to then self-medicate that depression. Now, what uh, sorts of efforts are being taken these days to ensure the ethnocultural competency of uh, counselors? Well, there's a lot of use of the term of ethnocultural competency. I'm not sure we all mean the same thing. So basically, in the global sense, it means awareness of individual differences. Now, we can't learn for each different culture what, what kind of treatment that person needs. So what we can learn is to listen to the people who come to us and let them tell us what's appropriate for their culture, and then we can help them recover within their cultural context. It's not like a, as a counselor I have to know about every different culture that my clients can come from. Like you mentioned the honk before. I mean, I wouldn't know about the pigs. I would have to learn from my clients of the value of that. So there are no textbooks about every single culture that exists or every single individual. We just need to be open to learning from our clients. Well, I think that's hugely important uh, for addictions counselors. I mean, tr many times in the traditional training they've had, they're they're actually taught to n 
you know, to confront clients and to uh, not listen to what clients say. And I think that's, that was a huge problem, but I think it's changed a lot. Um, if we look at some of Andrew Tatarsky's work, it's really a lot about listening to what people want. What kind of changes do people want to make themselves? Absolutely. My own training is from social work. And social work from the beginning believes in the idea of listening to clients and starting where the client is at. So this is very much, it's almost I had to forget my social work knowledge when I started working in addictions. And then only to realize I have to go back to my social work roots because that's where really, that's what's helpful. So the whole confrontation approach that was very popular for for many years, we found that many people just makes some people worse. Mm-hmm. So we have to be much more careful. And certainly you asked about women before, and women really do not do well with confrontation. And certainly some ethnic groups, particularly Asians, they're not, confrontation is not part of their culture. So to be yelled at by a counselor, it's really very shaming. And once you feel shamed, you're really not open to doing the work you need to recover. So we learned that confronting people is not the best approach. Mm -hmm. What are some current projects you're working on? Well, one right now I'm trying to develop a study. I want to look at social workers and their use of substances themselves, as well as social workers and their families of origin, because my suspicion is that it's a very high rate among social workers. But there's no literature. There's been no research on social work, social workers' use of substances. So they've done some work with nurses and some other professionals. But uh, this is a very large profession with hundreds and thousands of members and uh, who are there trying to help other people, and we don't even know if they have a problem themselves. So that's uh, so I'm right in the process of now developing a study to look at that. And I'm also doing some international work. I'm going to be taking a group of my students to Italy. To We're going to live in a therapeutic community. And my students will be learning about a very different approach because this is a therapeutic community run by the, they don't call them clients, but the people, they run their own businesses, they run their own treatment and it's a very different approach than being in a therapeutic community in America where you're told what to do all the time. So I'm looking forward to that experience which is for me culture is very important and and to learn how how other people deal with a similar problem but in a very different way. I would really like to uh, hear the results of that because I read a little bit, I encountered this before, the therapeutic communities in Italy in some research papers, and it seemed like, yeah, the modality of treatment was just so different from the United States. I just wanted to learn more, but there wasn't, there weren't any sources I could find. 
Right, and there isn't much literature. I've been trying to look at the literature. There is some in Italian which I don't read, but there is very little or in English. So I'll be learning and maybe writing myself about what I learn. But what's interesting in this particular therapeutic community, one of the products they make is their own wines, which they sell. So they also have wines with dinner, which is a certainly very not common approach in America for someone with a substance abuse problem. So I want to see how that works. Obviously, it's working because they've been in business for many years, and they have a many, many satisfied and a productive clients. So we'll see how it. What is it that we can learn from them? Mm-hmm. And if we do go way back to the 1960s in the United States, um, one of the things you did before you graduated the therapeutic community was you got drinking privileges. Yes, I remember those days, so at least heard about them. And But you didn't learn how to drink socially, which is what the Italian model is. And you only drink during dinner. You drink the way everybody else in Italy drinks. Uh, alcohol is considered food. It's part of the meal. It's not something you get rewarded for being a good <laughs> treatment person, and then you get a drinking privilege and you go out and get drunk. So it's uh, so it's not something that's added on after treatment. It's part of the treatment. It's learning how to how to drink socially. Now it may be that some people can't do that. So I'm going to be looking at that factor. Maybe some people cannot stay in this therapeutic community because they cannot control their drinking. But uh, by and large, the model is that every everybody in the country, you sit down for a meal and you have a drink, so why should this particular therapeutic community be different? So, but again, I'll learn more, and I'll let you know once I come back. That sounds really interesting. Well, some people do prefer abstinence from certain things. Um, For me, my two things that I need to abstain from, my two addictions I need to abstain from are cigarettes and television. Okay. Lots of people don't even re- don't even think of television as an addiction. For me, if I have one in the house, I I get totally sucked into it, and I don't get anything else done. You know, I can't. I get just totally you know hypnotized by it and can't turn it yeah. off. So it's really detrimental to me. But you know, lots of people say, no, no. How can a television be an addiction? But for me, that doesn't work at all. Alcohol is much easier to deal with. You know, if I drink a little bit, then I'm done because I don't want any more for a while. Right. Well, you know yourself what you need, and that's very important. And today we have so many people addicted, not so much to television as to Internet. And once they put on the Internet, they just cannot stop. And they really can't do anything else. So... In some ways, how to the whole issue of moderation management in whatever area is can some some people can do it, other people just cannot do it, and as you said, some people just need to abstain completely. 
But, uh, you know, if you don't watch television, you're going to get your news elsewhere. But if it's something more important, like food, you cannot abstain completely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have to learn how to moderate your food intake. So so that's, uh, again, it has to be individualized. And if if there is one message I can convey in this conversation is that really people are different and they need a different approach and they need to know themselves also. They need to learn what's what's good for themselves. Yeah, I think a good counselor really helps you to learn about yourself. That's what they do. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Well, I think we're running out of time, and it's probably a good note to stop on, that we should know ourselves, and good counselors help us to know ourselves. So I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Lala Strausner. Thank you, and all the best to you and your program. Thank you, everyone. Come back next Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Dr. Jeremy Frank, who is a harm reduction therapist in Philadelphia, will be our guest, and I will see you all then. So good night, everyone. Good night.